Before we start the, uh, the program here, I just wanted to make a couple housekeeping notes. Um, first of all, uh, hopefully a publication that you're, you're already familiar with, the Cato Handbook for Policy, is, uh, is something that we put out on a, uh, on a biannual basis, send it to all congressional offices. It's got kind of an A to Z uh, review of all the issues, or pretty much all the issues you, you'll deal with here in Congress. It's a great way to start off as you're familiarizing yourself with, with new issues and new subjects. Uh, we provide this for free to all congressional offices, so if you don't already have a copy, please let me know. If you have a copy that one of your colleagues is hogging or, or whatever, we'll be happy to get you another one. Just, just please do let me know. Um, second of all, I uh, wanted to plug briefly uh, Cato Audio. Uh, we do a number of events here on Capitol Hill at our offices downtown and, and all over the country. We record all of them and provide some of the highlights to you via Cato Audio. So uh, this is a, another publication that we provide complimentary to, to Hill staff. Uh, so if you feel like uh, picking up a copy, we have a few on the table. If you, uh, if you need more, if they run out, please let me know. And uh, also, apparently, these are available on, uh, on iTunes now. Um, so if anyone here has a, an iPod, I don't know if anyone does, but uh, you can actually go to iTunes and, and download some, some Cato lectures, um, which are nice on the, the Metro ride in. Um, finally, I want to make a quick plug for a, a daily newsletter that we put out called Cato Today. Uh, you can sign up for that at the table outside the registration table. It'll just let you know what events we, we have uh, in the pipeline, what kind of publications, what kind of research we're working on, uh, any interesting op-eds that, uh, that, that may be uh, published that morning. Um, great way to start off the day, see what, what, uh, what we're up to over at Cato. And again, you can sign up for that outside. With that, I'm going to, uh, to introduce... Um, Dr. John Samples. Uh, Dr. Samples is the director of, Sen director of the Center for Representative Government at the Cato Institute. Um, his center studies campaign finance reform, term limits, and uh, quite conveniently, lobbying reform. Um, he's also an adjunct professor at Johns Hopkins University, and uh, he's formerly a director of Georgetown University Press. He holds a PhD in political science from Rutgers. And with that, I will turn it over to Dr. Samples. Thanks, Brandon, and I'd like to welcome uh, each and one, every one of you today to uh, our seminar on and uh, discussion of a burning issue of the day, lobbying reform. Um, lobbying reform is a species of ethics reform, ethics for Congress, and as a sort of general picture when I think about ethics reform, I always think about Baptists and bootleggers. Now, that's a little strange, Baptists and bootleggers, but if you recall, uh, there were and are, amazingly, in this country, places where um, alcohol, the sale of alcohol, is prohibited. And very often, maybe some of you grew up in a place like this, very often uh, the prohibition of the sale of alcohol in a county, say, was brought about by Baptists who were pursuing religious ideals through public policy, that is, temperance, uh, hard work, and staying away from liquor through prohibition through public policy. So those were high ideals, and that was the Baptist part of it. But of course, prohibition itself was always a result of a coalition between Baptists and bootleggers, because the bootleggers liked prohibition also. Without prohibition of the sale of legal alcohol, there would be no profits from bootlegging. So it was a strange coalition. 
Here again, I think in lobbying reform, you have to think of it in those terms. On the one hand, the Baptist part is pretty clear. There's questions of corruptions, public integrity, and all of this has been brought to the fore by, uh, obviously, the Jack Abramoff situation. Mr. Abramoff has pleaded guilty in two jurisdictions to felonies and has, uh, as I understand it, at least from the Washington Post, implicated members of Congress. So there's a corruption problem that requires a response. But then that raises the question of bootlegging. That is, lobbying reform will be done in the public interest to prevent special interests, to prevent corruption, and to vindicate the integrity of government. But will there be a bootlegger component to it? That is, will the legislation in some way benefit or be drawn in ways that benefits people that we don't necessarily want to see benefited from all of this? And more than that, there's a question beyond that uh, on lobbying reform, which is that since it will involve regulation of political participation, of the right to petition government for redress of grievances, of freedom of speech, and in general, the notion of freedom of association and political participation, we have to be concerned that anything Congress might do may impinge on those rights. So, given the Cato Institute's focus on a liberal society, a society concerned with liberty and political freedom, we thought it was entirely apt that we have an uh, event today to discuss the pending uh, lobbying reform and what it might mean for the United States, both uh, to the interests that we don't want served being served and the ideals we do want to see vindicated uh, being vindicated. Uh, so we brought together two well-known and experts in this area, Brad Smith and Nan Aaron. We're going to hear first today from Brad Smith. Uh, Bradley A. Smith has served as Commissioner, Vice Chairman, and Chairman of the Federal Election Commission. His writings have appeared in such academic journals as the Yale Law Journal, the Georgetown Law Journal, and the Pennsylvania Law Review, and in popular publications such as the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and National Review. In 2001, Princeton University Press published his book, Unfree Speech, The Folly of Campaign Finance Reform, which is uh, certainly one of the major works in the field. He's currently professor of law at Capital University Law School in Columbus, Ohio, and he is a senior advisor to the Center for Competitive Politics. The Center for, Center for Competitive Politics is a new nonprofit organization that is concerned with maintaining and enhancing the vibrancy uh, of our politics and to vindicating notions of liberty in areas like campaign finance, and, polit and American politics more generally. So I give you Bradley Smith. Thank you, John. Well, it's good to see so many people here. It's nice to have these things when the, we're in recess so people have a little more time and can come out. And had a good flight over reading an uh, article in the U.S. Airways magazine on John McCain. And uh, it's good to be here with you all now. Um, it's never very popular to stand up and defend lobbying. I don't think it ever has been popular to stand up and defend lobbying, and you could hardly pick a worse time than this. And that's why we're talking about grassroots lobbying at all, because people want to call it lobbying because nobody likes lobbying. So those that want to restrict it don't want to call it something nice like grassroots organizing or citizen participation or activism. Rather, we term it lobbying. But I think I would suggest that uh, very few Americans out there in the public would talk about, uh, would, would consider it, uh, I'm having 
This is the best light we have, isn't it? Okay, see, I can't see what I've got to tell you, so I'm just going to have to wing this here. Very few citizens would think that when they call their congressman or when they write their congressman a note that they are engaged in lobbying. I can't imagine anybody back in the districts would say, yes, I was lobbying my senator the other day. I sent him a letter. See, nobody thinks that that is lobbying. And that, uh, nobody thinks that those are lobbying contacts. And I think that very few Americans believe that the problem in Washington these days is that too many citizens have been contacting their congressmen. I just don't see that as the problem, and I don't think back in the districts that many of the constituents for the office holders that you represent uh, feel that way either. And this is the fundamental problem with proposals to limit grassroots lobbying. Grassroots lobbying, by definition, interposes a voter between the entity that is uh, paying for the campaign, that is trying to gather public support, and the member of Congress. The link between a lobbyist and a congressman is not there. By definition, it has been broken by the action of a voter who must decide that the issue is important and must decide that it is worth him or her taking action on. Now, it may be that they take action because they received calls from somebody informing them about an issue, but what, pray tell, is wrong with that? How else are we expect citizens to become informed? This is what, in fact, citizens do. Uh, it's what we want them to do. And it's true that in many of these campaigns, the messages that urge these citizens to call are biased and misleading and poorly informed uh, or intentionally uh, distorting of the issue. And in that respect, they resemble newspaper editorials, talks radio hosts, uh, commentators on the McLaughlin Group, and members of Congress speaking to their constituents from time to time. Right? These are not unusual things. Most people present issues in the framework in which they would like the voter to consider those issues. And it is therefore uh, a, a good thing that citizens still make these contacts. And it has never been considered a valid grounds to limit citizen contact with their congressmen or to limit contact by groups to citizens the fact that they may be uh, not presenting the issue in the light that members of Congress would like them to present it. And indeed, this is, I think, precisely one of the things that the First Amendment is intended to prevent. It's intended to prevent the federal government or any state government from sitting about and making the decision as to whose speech brings the government into disrepute or whose speech is inappropriate. And again, note here that we are not talking about direct uh, campaign contributions to the congressman. We're talking about citizens contacting their congressman because they themselves have been informed about an issue that they have decided is important to them. Um, in this respect, when we recognize that this is what we're talking about, that we're talking about citizens and their opinions are real for whatever reason they have formed them, those opinions are real opinions of real citizens, then we recognize that grassroots lobbying is actually a safeguard against the type of abuses that people are upset about. If you're trying to shape uh, congressional policy, and of course the American citizens have a right to try to shape congressional policy under our Constitution, and moreover I think it's simply as good policy to allow citizens that right, 
When you're trying to shape public opinion and shape policy, there's two ways you can go about it. One is you can try to persuade voters to be on your side, to hold congressmen accountable at the ballot box. And two is you can hire a powerful Washington insider to make connections with the congressman outside of the public eye. Now, it strikes me that two is the one that voters are much more concerned about and that one is the one that exposes deals that may not be viewed by the public as being in their interest, but are done because of these connections, personal connections, that most Americans don't have access to. But almost any American can take the time to write or call, and most Americans belong to some type of group that can engage in those types of activities to get people to write or call. Now, I'm often, I'm often told, well, we're not talking about restricting the rights of people to do anything. Mainly what we're talking about up on the Hill these days is just to disclose. We just want to disclose who is behind these communications. Um, it's tempting to say that's fine, but it's none of your business who's behind these communications. Um, there is a, a point at which uh, people are entitled uh, to, to voice their opinions, and they're entitled to do it. It doesn't really matter, again, who is behind it. I mean, the American history is replete with people engaging in anonymous grassroots lobbying. Uh, this is what the Federalist Papers were, for crying out loud. They were anonymous grassroots lobbying. And throughout our history, we have seen great Americans, uh, right up through Abraham Lincoln and people like that, who have financed and participated in grassroots lobbying efforts, efforts to persuade the citizens to uh, be active in contacting members of Congress and to shape public opinion in that way. Um, but the problem, more directly, with uh, saying, well, it's just disclosure, it's only disclosure, is to think about what is the purpose. We've gotten to the point in our society, we tend to think, well, disclosure's always good. Now, we don't really believe that. Many of you probably kind of thought that when I just said disclosure's always good, but you don't really believe that. Because very few of you, for example, would demand that every citizen be forced to disclose who they vote for. We do recognize that sometimes it's good to protect anonymity. Right? And we want, in fact, voters to have that anonymity so that they can vote, so that citizens can act in confidence that there will not be retaliation against them for their votes. Disclosure in the campaign finance realm is very different. There, the purpose of disclosure is to provide the citizens with information about their lawmakers. It's to provide the citizens with the information they need to understand if perhaps what their lawmaker is telling them may not be something that they think is quite right. Is, does the lawmaker really believe this, or is he doing this because of other types of pressures? We might say lobbying pressures. Okay, But disclosure of grassroots lobbying seems to be aimed at informing the lawmakers about their citizens rather than informing citizens about their lawmakers. This is accountability running in the wrong direction. It is the lawmakers who ought to be accountable to the citizenry. It is not the citizenry that needs to be accountable to the lawmakers in that way. And the fear of retaliation is very real in this area. It has been recognized again and again, I would point out, by the Supreme Court in McIntyre versus Ohio Elections Commission, where a woman was uh, distributing uh, pamphlets opposing a tax increase. And the court, the Supreme Court, held that she had a right to do that anonymously. Uh, it was held that in NAACP versus Alabama back in the 1950s when the government wanted to know exactly who's behind this NAACP organization that's putting out all this, uh, 
you know, revolutionary kind of stuff uh, back in the 1950s. And I think you can all understand why the ability to remain anonymous was very important. It was the court's decision in Thomas v. Collins where it held that labor organizers did not have to gain prior approval from the government before they could talk about the benefits of a union. It was held just a couple years ago in Watchtower Bible versus Village of Stratton where it was held that the government could not require people going door to door to first gain a license of some kind from the government to announce their presence and announce that they would be engaged in that type of public activity. Um, one can envision, for example, vendors, uh, political operatives. If you're a group, you have a, a group and you want to g gather up public opinion for a particular issue, you might be uh, very concerned or you might find vendors very loath to work for you if they know that there could be retaliation against them. Uh, there are a very small number of people in this country, relatively speaking, who have the ability to orchestrate large uh, opinion campaigns. Uh, this is a very large country, and it takes a special expertise to do that. If people can be attacked or blackballed or isolated for making these types of uh, for these kinds of campaigns for citizens who merely want to be represented, we essentially are depriving those citizens, ordinary citizens, of representation to which they ought to be entitled to. And again, this is something that the Supreme Court has recognized repeatedly. I've also heard it said, well, if there's an exception for members, that will do the trick. Uh, I, kind of, that, that, I kind of get a kick out of that. An exception for members is nice if all you want to do is communicate with your members, but it's a very little value if you want to communicate, if you have an organization or a group and you want to communicate pe with people who are not your members. Um, if, for example, you have an organization and you want to communicate with the public about, say, whether or not Samuel Alito should be confirmed to the Supreme Court and you might be in favor of his confirmation or you might be opposed to his confirmation, either way, and the, you know, we know that groups were running grassroots campaigns on both sides of that issue. The member exemption does you no good whatsoever in trying to put your views out there to the broader public. The bottom line, then, is that Restrictions on grassroots lobbying do not address the concern that the public has, which is the concern about powerful insiders operating in an unaccountable way within Washington. Um, we should not be deceived by the fact that the term is called lobbying. Grassroots lobbying has nothing to do with Jack Abramoff or those kinds of scandals that are going about. And I've heard some people say, well, some of Jack Abramoff's clients were paying for grassroots lobbying campaigns. But who cares? There's lots of people paying for grassroots lobbying campaigns. Where was that? The corruption. We might as well have said, you know, uh, Jack Abramoff drove a Lexus. We need to ban Lexuses. I think he drove a Lexus. I don't know. Anyway, that's the kind of approach that we could take. The mere fact that something is vaguely associated with something that Jack Abramoff or some other lobbyist did at some point in time is hardly reason for the federal government to begin regulating it and potentially banning it. So, uh, in the end, I would suggest that cutting people out of politics is not the answer to the problem. The answer to the problem of special interest influence, to the lack of public confidence that comes about when they see some of the scandals that have broken on this city recently, comes from getting citizens and keeping citizens involved in politics. Thank you very much. Thanks, Brad. Uh, I think it is fair to say that Jack uh, Abramoff has destroyed the uh, reputation never high in recent years of black fedoras for some years to come. 
Our next speaker will be Nan Aaron, who has been a leading voice in public interest law for 30 years. Nan is president of the Alliance for Justice, a national association of public interest and civil rights organizations. She founded the Alliance in 1979, as well as its judicial selection process. In addition to increasing judicial advocacy, Nan has led the Alliance for Justice to expand its programs to support the participation of nonprofit and foundation staff in public life. The Alliance's workshops, technical assistance, and publications encourage lobbying, involvement in ballot measures, and election activities. Uh, she's nationally recognized for her expertise in public interest law, the federal judiciary, and citizen participation in public policy. She's the author of Liberty and Justice for All, Public Interest Law in the 80s and 1980s and Beyond, and has appeared as an expert in many um, media outlets, including the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, and is a frequent speaker at universities, law schools, corporations, nonprofits, and foundations. She has taught at Georgetown and George Washington University Law Schools and serves on the Dean's Advisory Council at American University's Washington College of Law. Nan Aaron. Thank you, John, for inviting me, and uh, also to the Cato Institute for organizing such a timely discussion on lobbying reform. I also wanted to just introduce some members um, from the Alliance staff who have, whose names may be familiar because they may have contacted many of you about this legislation, Dick Woodruff, Liz Town, Shannon Garrett, who are, who are over there, and I'm happy that they're here today as well. Um, and it's always a treat to be here with Bradley Smith, even though we may be at opposite ends of the political spectrum, we find ourselves on the same page with respect to issues pertaining to FEC laws, lobbying regulation and reform and so forth. So and thank you all for coming. As John indicated, the Alliance for Justice is an association of over 75 civil rights, public interest organizations that has been in existence since 1979. Um, we have a specific project called the Nonprofit Advocacy Program, which works with nonprofits from around the country. This is thousands of organizations uh, seek out our lawyers, our technical assistance for information about ways to navigate the IRS FEC laws so that these nonprofits can be more effective in the policy process. We conduct hundreds of workshops for nonprofits across the country, and I should also say that most of these nonprofits are small organizations. So we're quite familiar with the ways in which nonprofits carry out their work, and we also know that most of these organizations don't have the resources, unlike many of the big groups here in Washington, to hire lawyers, um, senior staff people, accountants, to help them understand the maze of, of rules. Um, the, as with Brad, I should say that uh, one of the first lessons we teach people attending our workshops is that lobbying is as American as apple pie. And we um, say as many times as we possibly can that an organization that wants to affect public policy change 
both here in Washington and at the local and state level, is not doing their job unless they're incorporating some lobbying strategies as part of their overall work. Um, and finally, with respect to lobbying reform specifically, AFJ was extremely concerned about provisions requiring the disclosure of grassroots lobbying, as well as privacy issues resulting from personal contributions and fundraising disclosure requirements. So we've been working very closely with staff in both the House and the Senate um, on these two issues grassroots lobbying requirements, as well as some of the rules or provisions requiring employees of registered organizations uh, to disclose to their employers how much they were giving uh, by way of um, campaign contributions. But we're here today to talk about lobbying reform. And in that context, I think every conversation on this topic has to begin with the First Amendment. And by assuming and acknowledging the uh, First Amendment rights of every American in this country to petition their government. Um, in reacting to clear examples of corruption and abuse like the Abramoff excesses, members of Congress have to remember that underneath all the corruption, there remains this fundamental constitutional First Amendment right. And any law that significantly impinges on that right is unconstitutional. To deal with political corruption effectively, we all need to understand the underlying reasons for the abuse that exists. Now there's first the old-fashioned uh, corruption of personal greed, as personified by Duke Cunningham, shaking down lobbyists for legislative favors while accumulating cash and various luxuries. That's the type of dishonesty that should not be hard to deal with by simply enforcing existing law. And in fact, uh, current law uh, did address his malfeasance, and now he is doing his, his punishment for breaking the law. It's also safe to say that Cunningham's dishonesty is not endemic. And fortunately for our system, his misbehavior is limited only to a few bad actors. The other type of corruption which is driven by the insatiable, insatiable need to raise huge amounts of campaign cash is endemic to the system. Almost every member of Congress is completely dependent upon special interests to finance the ever-increasing amounts they need both to get elected and to stay in office. An average of 20000 a week, every week, year after year. Lobbyists, as we all know in this room, are very creative fundraisers. Restaurants, ball games, clubs, lobbyists sponsor breakfasts and lunches, charging their clients thousands of dollars to sit with important chairmen or party leaders. They sponsor golf trips, ski vacations, trips to Las Vegas, to the Super Bowl, to shows in New York. 
No creative angle is too excessive for a lobbyist. Lobbyists do a lot of favors that have to be repaid. And those favors get repaid with special appropriations earmarks and legislative fixes. Now we all know that this has been going on for a long time. And the current round of lobbying reform is being driven by the Abramoff excesses. And when there's a scandal, one thing we can be sure of is day follows night, Congress gets moving. What was talked about in the wake of Abramoff, limiting the special access that lobbyists enjoy, trips, meals, entertainment, the special earmarks, the revolving door, access to gym and House and Senate floors, all these advantages that lobbyists currently enjoy, I should say, over the general public, limits on those are appropriate. But the essential fact remains that lobbying is a $10 million industry. Lobbyists need access to members, and members need campaign cash. As long as that symbiotic relationship exists, change is not going to be significant. Already, as we read over the weekend in an article by Jeffrey Birnbaum in the Washington Post, lobbyists are finding new ways to get the attention of lawmakers through fundraising and charitable events. One lobbyist quoted by the Washington Post said, quote, if meals are heavily restricted, we're likely to see executives from the home office picking up the checks because they're not lobbyists. That same article mentioned several other groups, Americans for Tax Reform and Third Way, that sponsor events charging their donors $15,000, $25,000 to come to meetings or events to hear lawmakers speak. Charities put lobbyists and members at the same dinners all the time. You cannot stop lobbyists from contributing to lawmakers' coffers, from, ho from hosting major fundraising events, not as long as campaign spending continues to rise, which it will this year by 20%, according to the Campaign Finance Institute, to over $3 billion. Or, as Mark Schmidt, senior fellow at the New American Foundation, puts it, quote, the problem isn't who pays for lunch. It's who pays for politics. Elected officials with enough integrity can, can avoid the meals and trips, but none of them can avoid the lobbyists who control, directly or indirectly, much of the money that pays for elections. So yes, Congress may pass a bill, which it will try to sell as reform. But as things are beginning to develop, it looks like it may be more of a diversion. And in the words of Mark Twain, Congress has learned that, quote, nothing so needs reforming as other people's habits. For instance, that bill that emerged from the Senate committee two weeks ago targeted grassroots lobbying, and we've heard Bradley talk a little bit about that. Sponsors of the bill say grassroots, ginning up of letters, emails, phone calls, 
is the fastest growing part of lobbying. Therefore, it needs to be regulated, restricted, and disclosed. But the question I have is, how does the process of encouraging constituents to contact their representatives lead to corruption? Grassroots lobbyists are your constituents. They don't have access to wads of campaign cash. Furthermore, grassroots lobbying also, as Bradley said, had nothing to do with the Abramoff scandals. Yeah, I think some of us have heard the argument that Abramoff and his partners paid a grassroots firm run by Ralph Reed to run a secret campaign in South Carolina to undermine a, camp, a, a casino initiative. Reformers point to this as evidence that grassroots lobbying paid for with laundered money and thus was ripe for abuse. If what they did was illegal, Abramoff and others will be prosecuted, but the Senate bill is unnecessary overkill. It would have, in its original version, shut down grassroots lobbying by chilling it. Every time an organization, liberal, conservative, whether it was the Sierra Club or the Right to Life Committee, sent a communication of any kind to its members or to the general public, anything, it would have been defined as grassroots lobbying and would have been reported to the House and Senate. There was no requirement even that the communications urge the grassroots to take action. Now, nonprofits already report their lobbying to the IRS. This legislation would have required them to keep separate books for the more expansive reporting to Congress because the definition under that Senate bill was much broader. And the burden would have killed any effort by Americans to exercise their constitutional right to lobby. This would have affected every organization back home. Every garden club, small business association would have found itself a federally regulated entity. The result would have been a serious interference with the public's right to receive information about important policy issues and their right to petition their government. We at the Alliance for Justice were successful in making some modifications to this, pro to this provision. But the fact remains that requiring organizations to report grassroots lobbying is an unnecessary dodge and diverts public attention from the real problem. There is another significant problem. Last week, House leaders demonstrated just how far off track the reform effort was when they announced that their bill would contain the so-called 527 provision. The 527 provision is a campaign finance issue and has nothing at all to do with lobbying reform. In fact, the House 527 provision will forge a new bond between wealthy individuals and the lawmakers by channeling huge amounts of campaign money 
from organizations that are now independent to the political parties that are controlled by candidates. Regardless of what you think of 527 organizations, like the SWIFT boats, Progress for America, or Americans Coming Together, and regardless of whether you think or we think they have too much influence or wealth, the fact of the matter is they operate independently of the parties and the candidates, and they allow individuals to band together to exert influence on the, exec on the electoral process. And they already disclose their donors, so we know where the money is coming from. And I'd say most importantly, this provision really betrays the bipartisan spirit of lobbying reform. So, and where is the corruption? I don't think there is. What there is instead is a Republican perception of Democratic fundraising vantage, since Democratic 527s outraised Republicans ones two to one in the 2004 election cycle. It is an advantage that Republican leaders want to see neutralized. And what better time to do it than to throw it in this mix of lobbying reform? At least in the Senate, there seems to be a desire to see a reform bill passed. Senators worked a strict regimen to keep campaign finance-related amendments off this bill, mindful that a 527 provision could bog the whole process down. Now, that could change. Senator McCain has filed the 527 amendment and may offer it on the Senate floor next week. If that happens, don't hold your breath waiting for a lobbying reform bill to pass this year. I should say in conclusion, if we at the Alliance for Justice thought that lobbying reform would give a greater voice or an enhanced voice to the small nonprofits here in Washington around the country, we would be all in favor of it. It would be a vast improvement over the current process. We know, the public interest community knows, what it's like to lobby in this climate, where obviously money speaks louder and more powerfully than our own combined voices. But lobbying reform legislation, from both offered from the House and Senate, does not do that. And therefore, we have come to the conclusion that we find both bills unacceptable as presently constructed and certainly hope that this 527 amendment is not added into the Senate bill. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Nan. I think now, as is often the case with our events, we would like to go to the floor. We have a great crowd here today and have some questions and answers for our two speakers who will uh, reply from their, I believe these mics are working, from the desk. In the back, please, the first question. Uh, I didn't hear any 
Yes. Public financing of elections. Okay, because it's been very popular, obviously, with the public as far as the presidential level, because a lot of them don't want it by not checking it off on the tax form. So I'm just curious if that's what your uh, end result is. Yes. Uh, in the front here. And then. There's no microphone today? No. You, I think the room's small enough. You can just ask the question. Oh, I'm Dave Barbrighton of the Bill of Rights Foundation. And we do, that's just about, what we do is grassroots uh, lobbying. Um, although it's not happened to us yet, I've heard that one of the concerns uh, about the large commercial pay street, you know, lobbying firms, that if they have an issue for one of their clients where there's an element in that issue that would interest the Bill of Rights Foundation, for instance, that that lobbying group would get in touch with us and give us a pile of money to try to be more effective in our lobbying because there's an element in what they want to do that serves their purposes. And I, I've been told that the other side, the people who want this reform for the grassroots group, goes to that issue about uh, on a larger scale that in other words, they might call 20 or 30 or 40 grassroots uh, organizations and give them a pile of money to kind of do their lobbying for them and then not report the cash is going directly to the uh, lobbying effort. And it's more of a donation to a, a 501c3 like ourselves. And I was wondering if you could touch on that. Well. I, I guess I can try, uh, and, and keeping in, in, in tune with my comments earlier, I guess my answer would be that's interesting to know what does it mean, and I'm not sure that it means uh, much of anything in terms of somebody saying, well, Congress needs to regulate that or, or know what's going on, because I think, again, the, the key point, it seems to me, is that the link uh, is broken, that essentially you have to have citizens acting if you're doing, you know, grassroots lobbying. Now, if you're doing donations to 501c3s that are then doing lobbying up on the Hill, that takes us back to the more traditional forms of lobbying regulation, some of the topics that Nan talked about a bit more. And, you know, I think that there are some legitimate things that can be done there, but I agree with the notion that the big problem is not going to be resolved by limiting lunches too much or things like that. And, and there, I'm not sure there is an easy way out other than to say that voters need to be informed of what their congressmen are doing. And that closes the circle, takes us back to grassroots lobbying. Yes. Well, okay. <clears throat> you know, I wish I could give you an easy answer. Um, 
I think we've all learned through our experience with BICRA, the, the bill that was passed a couple years ago uh, regulating elections, that legislation that impinges on the ability of Americans to exercise their First Amendment rights um, begets litigation, begets other controversy. This is probably the most difficult area in which to legislate reforms. And I think as our comments try to express, it's, I hate to see, and I think it's, it's ill-conceived for Congress to be fixated in regulating the operations of nonprofit organizations. I would say the problem is not that there are a few big ones out there that may engage in an excessive amount of legislative activity. The problem is that not enough are involved in this very important means of expression of their views. But having said that, I would go back to public financing of, of campaigns, and we will never, again, as, as witnessed by BICRA, be able to reform this area until we grapple with the, the very difficult issue of elections and how we finance those elections. And as long as we continue down the same road, none of these reforms will have any effect whatsoever until we all bite the bullet and focus on the real, the real elephant in this room, and that is how we finance elections in this country. John, uh, Nan's going to force me to comment on public financing or gov uh -oh. government taxpayer <laughs> financing of elections. And, and what I say about taxpayer financing of elections is essentially it's, it's kind of a fraud. I don't mean it's a fraud that somebody's trying to be intentionally deceiving or anything. I just mean it's a fraud and that it cannot accomplish what people who support it hope it will accomplish. Because as soon as you have the government pay for elections, then you still have the exact same question, well, what do you do with independent groups operating independently of the candidates? They'll still influence elections. So on. what do you do about lobbyists? People still have a right to lobby. In other words, it, it, the, the two general things propon uh, that promote it, the two general values are equality and an end to corruption. And it doesn't address either of those, as those have been defined by people who promote government financing themselves. It doesn't create equality and it doesn't end the issues of people having influence in government and possibly uh, leading to what is perceived as quid pro quo corruption unless you're going to blanket all political activity in the United States. And then the only question is, okay, are we now, now we've got the issue of, well, newspapers or something corrupting. So then we have to, you know, in other words, you have to keep extending it out in ripples till you get to a point that nobody here would tolerate or think would lead to a society that's not corrupt. Remember that generally societies that have tried to suppress political participation end up being extremely corrupt uh, societies, and uh, I think that's just generally the wrong way to go. So you can't suppress enough speech. You can't get your way out of corruption by suppressing speech. You can have the government pay for campaigns, but that still doesn't solve the problem of, of if you perceive it as a problem, of people speaking and influencing government. That's what they do when the government spends a couple trillion bucks a year and regulates most things in our life. I, w I would just say, uh, 
as an added remark. I mean, one of the problems of lobbying reform, and indeed the general public distaste of lobbying, is it's something that carries over from campaign finance and elections regulation, is a distaste for private interest in politics. And the assumption is that there is a public interest that we know before we have political struggles, and that lobbyists are the means for subverting that on, on behalf of private interest. But if you read, uh, say, Federalist Number 10, one of the founding documents of this Constitution in this country, what you find is that James Madison thought a lot about this and decided, along with the people who wrote the Constitution, that the struggle of private interest might be a more certain way of vindicating the public interest than actually um, trying to write into law initially or excluding private interest from political struggle. So lobbying has gotten a very bad reputation but, uh, and has have private interests, but indeed they seem to be part of a liberal politics from the beginning. Some other hands up in the back. Yes, I wanted to ask the panel in general if they believe that the First Amendment applies to foreigners, and then of course I have a follow-up. Does the First Amendment apply to foreigners? Foreigners. 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 Sure. So how is it possible is it? Is it? to regulate and restrict the campaign contributions and the lobbying of foreigners when it is not possible to do so for citizens? Well, I mean, my, my general belief has been that, that uh, it is acceptable within the Constitution to put restraints on people who are not members of the body politic that are not on those who are members of the body politic. I don't, I don't worry about the issue, honestly, too much at a theoretical level to have a good, strong answer uh, to your question. Uh, I generally think, see no problem with lawful permanent residents uh, participating in political campaigns. They're subject to our laws. They're subject to being drafted if we were to reinstitute a draft. Um, but I think that one can put a, a, a barrier on uh, participation by those who uh, you know, do not live in the country, and whether that becomes inconsistent at some level, it, I guess, doesn't really concern me too much. I've just thought it's an issue that's not really on the charts. That may not. If Osama, if Osama no, moved, moved here and were a law-abiding <laughs> permanent resident citizen, law-abiding citizen, you know, yeah. But I think. Well, I think under current law, they're not allowed that, that foreigners cannot contribute. Cannot make well, campaign a, a lawful permanent resident can, you know, uh, I mean, like, you, you want to give me a hypo uh, hypothetical that I just don't think is very relevant. I don't really care about. If Osama moves here and people say we don't want him contributing to campaigns, you know, we can all live with that. A lot of PACs are sponsored by felonies, by felon corporations. Okay. Did you want – let's let Nan. No, no. Did you want – it, it is an interesting question. I mean, the, the notion of the First Amendment being whether it's a universal natural right or not, and I thought a lot about this when I wrote it. I'm, I have written a book, and will publish a book on campaign finance reform this fall. The, it's very odd. I mean, in a sense, foreign nationals are prohibited from making campaign contributions. But if you look at the lobbying restrictions on them, lobbying regulations, they're not all that different from the ones that we have on uh, people who live here in the country. They're not much more restricted. I mean, if the higher representatives have to register as foreign agents and so on. But the restrictions on campaign finance are a lot more onerous because it's an actual prohibition. No, as my question went to why does the Supreme Court cite the First Amendment 
to strike down limits on, on campaign contributions and spending mm -hmm. in particular, mm -hmm. when they don't strike down such prohibitions on such activities by aliens? Uh, and I think the question is, is it a universal natural, they saw it that way, a universal natural right, or is it limited, the First Amendment limited to people who are citizens of the United States? And they decide, and also they decided uh, that, you should remember also corporations and labor unions are prohibited as are minors from making contributions in, in campaign finance. And the fact is, I suspect the actual answer is because uh, because of the example you chose, I mean, it's easier to put restrictions on foreigners, and there's not go there is not a pol much political support for not having them. As you saw, for example, in the Clinton era, I mean, talk about the Chinese army making contributions to. Please. I don't know anything about the latter part of that question, which is what is the likelihood of them passing lobbying reform. Here's the thing with 527s. Uh, Nan mentioned that one of the reasons Republicans seem to want to uh, attack 527s is that Democratic-leaning or left-leaning 527s, some are left-leaning, some are Democratic-leaning, some are both, I guess, have been outspending uh, right-leaning or Republican-leaning 527s. Of course, part of the reason for that is that Republican leaders have been going around telling their, their supporters for years that they'll go to jail if they give money to 527s, which tends to kill giving. You know, that tends to discourage people from making contributions. The other thing is, you know, when McCain-Feingold passed, what was the single provision that most agitated Republicans' grassroots and, and most Republicans in Congress? It was the provision in Congress that limited activity by independent outside organizations to not even mentioning a candidate in a broadcast ad within 60 days of an election. If they used any corporate or any union money or were incorporated themselves, even if they paid for it all with, with private donations. What is the 527 bill? The 527 bill is the 60-day ban extended to 365 days a year and applied to all media, not just broadcast ads, and applied not only to limits on corporate or union money, but also to limits on individual money. And the only difference is that it only applies to groups organized under Section 527 of the tax code and not to groups organized under Section 501c4 of the tax code or other sections of the tax code. Otherwise, it is just the 60-day ban writ large over a much greater group of part, portion of political activity. And once you recognize that, you can say, well, at least it doesn't get, you know, the 501c4, so it leaves more room to play. But on the other hand, there's no principled reason, no, I think, legal reason, and no policy reason why it should not be extended to all of those other groups. Once we've agreed that it's appropriate to limit independent political spending 365 days a year, it's pretty tough to figure out why a group should be able to do it just because it happens to be organized under Section 501c4 of the tax code, but not be able to do it because it's organized under Section 527 of the tax code. Who cares? I don't think your average citizen out there, by the way, has a clue as to what section is what. And even now, we're in an odd situation. You know, you hear people talking about 527s. I mean, there's already, you know, 
50 different sets of rules for 527s. There's 527s that are presidential campaigns, and they have a set of rules, and Senate campaigns have a set of rules, and leadership PACs have a set of rules, and state 527s have a set of rules. They're all over the map. And so if we're going to say we've got to apply the same rules to everybody, why would you, which is the argument for now getting these other 527s, it doesn't make sense. But once you say that, why would you stop and not get into 501c4s? So I can't figure out how any Republican who opposed McCain-Feingold on that ground can favor 527 regulation. They can do so only, I think, because they see it as something that might work to their kind of level the playing field back up for something they think is unfortunate. But the answer for me to that would be, well, why do you want to regulate everybody in the way you opposed before? Why not deregulate? Why not go back the opposite direction? And I think one of the real sad things is that it's fairly obvious that McCain-Feingold has failed. It hasn't reduced time spent fundraising. It hasn't reduced corruption. It hasn't promoted equality. It hasn't made campaigns less negative. It hasn't reduced the amount of money spent in campaigns. Pretty obvious. I, does anybody here want to dispute any of those points? So then the question is, we really would be in a position where I think we could start repealing some of the worst elements of that law, but for this kind of fanatical drive all of a sudden to get even with uh, a perceived disadvantage they had on 527s. Well, so the there's my thing, harangue for the day. That was a good one. Um, the only thing I would add is it, it, I think the argument points out the real folly of the 527 language because if that provision were to pass Congress, then all these 527s would, I assume, convert themselves into 501c4 organizations, and we'd be back starting all over again. So it's, it's I mean, I think it, it goes to the, the nature of this kind of reform. There's always a, a way around. Well, 501c3s cannot engage in political activity at all. Well, no, he was talking about 501c4s who can engage in some amount, uh, less than the majority of the work they do. But 501c4s can engage in some amount of political activities, but c3s are absolutely prohibited from engaging in any kind of political work. No idea. I mean, it's so vast, and there's so. I mean, name an issue. There's. I, I, I don't. I, I think one reason folks don't is that it's not really even even defined. And of course, some people say, "Well, this is it. We need now to define it and start measuring it." But that again, I'd say, "Well, well, why?" And I'm always puzzled that any member of, of the House or Senate would not know when a campaign is being orchestrated in his or her district, encouraging people to call or contact his office. Any any uh, member of Congress who I think is that out of touch has problems that go beyond the five to, or the grassroots campaign being waged in his district. Yes.
Well, I, I think that's a loaded but friendly question. Um, and, and it shows, you know, I mean, all of you, let's say I was particularly persuasive this morning. You know, I like to have that fantasy anyway. And all of you might go back and say, ooh, this is a really bad idea to your congressional offices or to the interest groups that you represent or the citizens groups, you know, and you may go back and, and say that. People say, oh, well, this is just illusionary. You've just been swayed by that eloquence of that Smith character. I mean, that's really what we're kind of talking about. You know, again, it doesn't really matter why voters feel that way. If they feel that way, they feel that way. And I can think of all kinds of things that I wish voters didn't feel that way about, but they do. And, uh, you know, woe to the politician who decides that he'll ignore that. So this strikes me as an effort to, to kind of say, uh, you know, we don't want these other folks telling our constituents what, we, what they ought to think. We're the ones who ought to be telling them what they ought to think. I think it's appropriate for members to take that leadership role, but I think it's inappropriate to suggest that other members of society don't have a right to participate in that debate. Other questions? Just to follow up on that, what would happen if you were actually a, sh a shell 501c4 and you were actually uh, essentially the agent of MZM who wants to influence earmarks in Congress and on your staff happens to be the wife of a congressman um, and instead of directing money directly to him in terms of a mortgage or a new Rolls Royce, you were paying his wife a hefty sum, and as 501c4 didn't have to disclose that periodically, um, then is it a problem? And doesn't it get to that question that wasn't set up um, of something that's more illusionary as opposed to well. grassroots? If, you, if you've read my writings in the past, you know that one thing I've been very, very critical of is the fact that, in, in fact, it's very easy to funnel money directly to a congressman's family in a perfectly legal method by hiring relatives as lobbyists and things like that. Um, so if that's what concerns you, let's put restrictions on spouses working. And people say, well, that's unfair to a spouse. Why should we penalize a spouse just because he or she happens to be married to a senator? To which my response is, why should we penalize everybody else in America just because he or she happens to be married to a senator? Let's keep the focus of the, cons of the restraint narrow, would be my view. And that's one of the things. I hear people say, what about some of these abuses? To which I say, these proposals that I have seen make no distinction between abuses and legitimate activity. Most of them just go after it all. And I think most of us in this room, if we sit and think about it, would agree that the vast majority of activity is, is not abusive, however you want to define that. That most of it is honest efforts to create and, and uh, uh, create knowledge of uh, issues, you know, and to get the public excited about issues, which I think is generally a good thing. That most lobbyists in their non-grassroots lobbying, their traditional lobbying activities are often, you know, they're very ethical, providing good information to members about how potential legislation would affect various segments of the economy. So if we're concerned about something that might be funneling money to a family member or something, there's much more narrow ways to get at it than to try to suppress the activity of, you know, everybody else back, back there in Columbus where I'll fly back to in a couple of hours. No, uh, no I, I, <laughs> I, I completely agree with that. I mean, getting back to the, this notion of the AstroTurf lobbying versus grassroots lobbying, I, I, I do think there needs to, we need to distinguish between the two, but I don't know how I would do it, and I don't know what language I could come up with that would penalize the AstroTurf crowd that you're referring to from what the 
Sierra Club does or the Right to Life Committee does. I, I don't know. I'm not sure I could do it. Ask, isn't that what you have a free and aggressive press for? Well, you know, it's very interesting to me that all throughout the Alito hearings, um, we knew and the press knew who was fomenting all the grassroots lobbying with the White House in support of the Alito nomination. It was Progress for America, which had created those infamous Swift boat ads. I was, and it was apparent to anyone who attended the hearings that Progress for America was outside the hearing room the whole time, and I was surprised, frankly. You didn't need a disclosure law to tell you what was going on and who was doing what, um, and who was, how this, the campaign was being financed, and I was surprised that very few reporters at getting to this issue of the press, I was surprised how few reporters, I don't know that any, focused on the, the role of Progress for America in getting, helping secure Sam Alito's Supreme Court justiceship. On that point, I'd like to thank every one of you for coming here, and I'd like to thank Nan Aaron and Brad Smith. <laughs>